You're listening to the Prestige 70 Podcast, a collection of intimate conversations with contemporary jazz artists with an eye toward the genre-defining music made on Prestige Records. Our guest today is the son of a trumpeter in a Dixieland band, a virtuosic keyboardist revered as one of the principal forces in the fusion of jazz, rock, funk, and Latin music. He followed Herbie Hancock as pianist in Miles Davis's band, the band that recorded classics such as Bitches Brew. His restless creative spirit has seen him collaborate with vibraphonist Gary Burton and banjoist Bela Fleck, among many others. His numerous band projects include the groundbreaking Return to Forever, the acoustic band, the Chick Corea Trio, Trilogy. He's run 22 Grammy Awards and just recently nominated for his 23rd for the album Antidote. He's also been recognized as a National Endowment for the Arts Jazz Master. Chick Corea, welcome to the Prestige 70 podcast. Oh, thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. We're thrilled to have you. Um, I mentioned your father in the introduction. He was a trumpeter. That's right. Tell me, tell me about the music you heard him playing when you were a kid. Uh, it was a great environment. We had this three-room uh, apartment. It was on like a, a main street in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. There was a bar room across the street and a grocery store downstairs. And my dad had a phonograph, uh, you know, in there mm-hmm. with, uh, with speakers. And he had just a huge collection of 78 RPM. Uh, the ones that I remember were the dial recordings dial records, the yellow or yellow label, mm. and uh, the Charlie Parker recorded for, and Charlie Parker and Miles, when Miles was a young trumpeter, 17, 18 years old, playing with Bird, he, he had those recordings, he had the Billy Eckstein big band, uh, he had, uh, you know, and Sarah Vaughn was working, uh, was singing with Billy Eckstein mm. then. And then as the years went on, he had, we, the LPs came in and, and uh, but it was all jazz. That was what my dad was uh, passionate about and that's what, the kind of music that he brought into his dance band and that's what I listened to and mm. I loved it right away. Was there, was, was, even, even, even at a young age, but you know, as you're going through elementary school and junior high school, was there an artist who caught your ear such that you knew that's something I want to pursue. Well, all of it did really. Uh, like uh, like the way the way uh, Charlie Parker played, I wanted to be able to play like that. And then then when I heard Bud Powell playing with him, I wanted to play like Bud Powell. Mm. Then uh, then I heard Thelonious Monk, and I thought I wanted to play like that. And then when I heard Horace Silver later on, not only did I want to play like that, but I wanted to compose like that. Uh, and Horace was kind of my, at that point, was my inroad into composition because I started, I was old enough to start to, to transcribe his solos and his compositions. Mm. Early on, like at, at the age of four, I would listen to Bud and want to play like Bud, but I, I could hardly, I, you know, <laughs> I, I was just Probably beginning. could hardly reach the keys at that, <laughs> you know, at, at that point. So, so you were playing piano at four, you were playing drums at the age of eight. If, if I understand yeah, correctly. Yeah, uh, the drums didn't come actually, let's see, I didn't have drums in that first apartment. When I was 11, we moved to uh, Everett, Mass. Mm-hmm. And when my, my mom uh, made enough money to buy this little tiny ho- house. Yeah. And that's where I got my first drum set. So mm-hmm. I guess I was 11 or 12. Yeah. You've later referenced the drums as being important to your piano playing. Uh, very, very important. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're the most fun instrument to play. They're as, as fun to play as the piano, actually. But, um, in fact, in, in, uh, when I first got to New York, it was like 1960, I got there in 59, in 1962 or so, 62 and 3, I was, I was trying to make a, a living playing gigs on the piano. And when I would get a, a when I would get a job on the piano, the other guys would come to the gig with their horns all beautifully sounding beautiful and uh, and then I would I would have to play on these out of tune really badly bad pianos and I, I would I would get embarrassed it get it would get time for my for, for a piano solo and I'd sound terrible so I thought this isn't working and and I at that point I uh, got my drum set I rented a, a, a small room in a loft and I practiced my head off and I started working as a drummer for about a year and a half 
until I got a call to work with Stan Getz, and I started working on nice big pianos. Mm. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tell me about, I, I want to circle back on, on, on that stuff, but, but tell me about Salvatore Sulo. Who was Salvatore Sulo? Sulo, Sulo was a friend of the family. He was a wonderful classical pianist, an Italian guy. Who, who was in and amongst the Italians that, that, was, that my dad and mom and family were growing up with. And evidently he, um, he was a prodigy. He, got, he, he was born in the United States, but he got sent to Italy as a, as a punishment because he was an unruly kid. So they sent him to a music school and he became a classical pianist, <laughs> came back home and he used to play concertos, uh, piano concertos with the Boston Pops and uh, so forth. So my dad, when I was eight years old, said, well, you gotta go to a real piano teacher now because my dad was a trumpeter uh, and he wanted me to learn from a pianist. So I went to Sulo and, and Sulo really, uh, he, he was good. He was funny. He didn't like jazz that much. He kind of made fun of it. But uh, he took me under his wing as sort of one of the family and uh, introduced me to Chopin and Bach and Beethoven. But you, in later years, um, you have gravitated back to classical music in, in, in many ways. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have an interesting relationship to classical music because at, at first it was, it was uh, the, the pianisticness of it uh, intrigued me mm. at, at, at Sulo's lessons. I would go and he, he would give me these uh, pieces by Bach and Chopin and so forth. After high school, 1959, I got accepted to Columbia University. So I went to New York uh, and um, tried going to school there and it just didn't work. Uh, I ended up going down to Birdland and seeing Miles Davis play live. I mean, after you see Miles Davis and John Coltrane on the stage with Philly Joe Jones and Paul Chambers and, and Wynton Kelly on piano, uh, you know, why do I want to study the history of Western civilization? So. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that experience and, and what it mm -hmm. meant to you in terms of your thinking. Well, first of all, it's one of those kind of pleasure moments and, and, and like e everything about the experience is totally etched. I mean, if I, could, if I could run the film of the memory for you, you'd really enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, and you'd have to see the film through a, uh, through a cracked glass in my right lens. I was wearing a pair of glasses that had cracked lens. I had to tape the lens and, you know. And I, I, I was on my own, and I walked downstairs at the old Birdland on uh, 52nd Street and Broadway. At tables, there was a cover charge. Yeah. And I was alone. I didn't drink. So I, I was off um, in this part that just had chairs behind a railing called the bleachers. And that's where people like me sat who just wanted to listen. So I was right on the edge. And um, the, the, the way it dramatically rolled out was Paul Chambers walked out on stage with his bass and Philly Joe came out and sat behind the drums. And they both, uh, in my mind then, they both kind of sat there for quite a while and Paul was holding his bass and kind of, just kind of hanging there and Philly Joe Jones had his sticks and it seemed like a long time before the next thing happened which is then Coltrane walked out on the stage and, and stood uh, on the stage with his arms resting on his tenor saxophone, kind of just waiting. And then Wynton Kelly walked up, wearing a hat, uh, got a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand, and he came across and sat at the piano. And, you know, the excitement is building. These are my heroes, every one of them. And then there was a little bit of time where Miles took the dramatic moment, and he came to the front, and he really took his time. He took his time. He didn't talk to the audience, but, but he took his time. He was there comfortably. He, he bent down, he put the, uh, uh, the Harmon mute in his, in his horn, he put it in, got, got set, everyone was ready. 
And then he put, his, <clears throat> he put the harmony mute on the microphone, which is what he used to do to get that, that, that sound. Like you put, he put it literally right on the microphone and he, and he played and they went into autumn leaves and that was it for yeah. me. I mean, that was it. I mean, I went back to Columbia. I, I immediately made a call to my mom and dad and I said, look, look, uh, mom, uh, this is the uh, university's not for me. I'm, you, you had seen your direction. Yeah, yeah, you had, yeah. You but had I seen knew it before then. It was just, it took me a little yeah. way around, you know. So years, you know, years later, obviously you come to, to play with Miles Davis. And, and I'm wondering if you recounted that story to him. I, I was too humbled and, and shy to be just chatting with Miles mm. at, at that point and telling, yeah. telling him about when I first saw him like a fan. I was, right. I was trying to find out how to be with, with, mm. with Miles Davis. Mm. You followed you know, uh, this, this just incredible almost, almost procession of pianists who played with him. You know, over time, you mentioned Wynton Kelly, and there's Red Garland, and there's Herbie Hancock, and Bill Evans. Bill Evans mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's quite a list. Um, and 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 I'm, I'm I'm wondering for you, based on based on that history, talking about you know trying to figure out how to be. Did you get any advice about playing with Miles? Did Herbie talk to you at all about the chair? No, not a word. And you know, you know, I gotta gotta tell you and the the public to, to listen that this is a this is one of the old wives' tales and myths about the passing of the hat, especially in in uh, in the jazz music that I grew up in, with yeah. the people that I grew up in. It's it. This is not something I came across. It was it's all it, it was all done very casually. Tony Williams, uh, who was a uh, who was a fellow Bostonian mm. uh, that I knew before he went to New York as a very young man, I knew Tony and played with him a little bit in Boston. Tony was the one that called me on the phone and said, "Hey, Miles wants you to come and and uh, play with him at this club in Baltimore. If Herbie Herbie can't make it, that's all I heard." I said, "Can I can I call Miles?" So he gave me Miles's number and I called Miles up and and. And I, and I asked Miles, I said, I'm, I'm going to come play with you in Baltimore. He said, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I said, well, um, uh, is there going to be rehearsal? So, you know, he said, just play what you hear. So I never even spoke to Herbie about it. So I arrived in Baltimore at this club in Baltimore uh, to play with this band that was already five years in, in oiling. Mm-hmm. And they were they were on fire. The only new member that had already replaced Ron Carter was Dave Holland was on bass, but Wayne was there playing saxophone, and Tony Williams was playing drums, and uh, the the music took off like that. And and I'm, I keep thinking Miles's instruction to me is play what you hear, because I didn't know the changes to some of these pieces that they were playing, but they they're. Their approach to the all of the pieces that we were playing at that time was very abstract, and I could hear that. So Miles said, "Just play what you hear." That was his instruction. So that was all, that was almost freeing. It in was a sense. very freeing, and I because I was used to by that time playing free music and and playing what I hear. I had already made a, re- a recording called "Is" that was all, all free playing. Mm. Uh, so I did that. It was a very exciting rocket ride. It seemed like the set lasted about three seconds, and then it was over. Uh, and I was sitting at the bar afterwards uh, with, with a drink, kind of wondering what had just gone down. And Miles came up to the back of me and put his mouth in my ear and gave me a compliment, which I can't relay in public. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been incredibly of course, validating. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I ended up walking on a cloud for the next week. Yeah. You, I, I think you, you, you mentioned it at some point that um, his recording of Someday My Prince Will Come um, was particularly inspiring to you in, in some way. 
Someday my prints will come, and, and that particular track where, where Train came in, in the recording studio and kind of sat in on the piece, mm -hmm. that's the way that story goes. Because Hamp Mobley is playing tenor in Miles's band at that time. Train had already left to form his own group. But Coltrane uh, uh, appeared at the studio, and Miles invited him in to play on that tune. And, and Train's presence on that tune and his solo on that tune are totally, totally classic and uh, uh, very inspiring. So it's Train's presence as well as Miles's rendition yeah. of Someday My Prince Will Come uh, made that a very, very special track mm. for me. As, as a band leader, what made him special? With, with his bands, he, he, didn't, he didn't give his, his musicians any instructions particularly. As I des described when I came on the band, zero instructions. And what he tried to do was uh, elicit from them their own interpretation of the music and, and, and their own way of, of getting on that thin edge that he liked to be on, which is that edge of spontaneity, of improvisation, of like taking the moment and, and giving the rendition from that viewpoint and not particularly relying on cliches and what you've done and, and what the last rendition was. And he wanted his other musicians to be operating that way. So that's, that's the vibe that he put out in the band. He would occasionally uh, say something. I asked him a few questions through the years and he would give me terse answers, which, which always turned out to be pretty spot on actually. But that was, he, he treated his musicians with love and with total respect as equal artists. He mm. wanted to work with artists. Mm. Yeah, I was, I, you know, I was struck and, and um, you know, looking at, uh, watching the film on the making of, of your most recent record, Antidote. And it struck me that, that you do the exact same thing, is that you, you spend as much time in that film talking about the musicians in your band than you do about the music or yourself, for, yeah. for that matter. Well, if you look at it, the kind of music I play and that Miles played at, uh, and that I love to play is all about the musicians. And as a composer, these are, these are the, uh, the creative beings that, that I bring together to realize what I laid down. So, so I don't want them to become robots and just read the notes. I want them to take the concept, which the notes, the, the written notes are kind of a guide, uh, you know, like a script. Mm. Another thing Miles did, which is, which is interesting, and I, I do the same thing, is when I present a part to uh, one of my musicians and I hear what he's doing, I always let him know that he should change the part around to suit himself. If he needs to remove a few notes or add a few other notes, just to make sure that, the, that he's got that rendition and he makes it his own. Mm. So the notes on are much less important than, than that musician's rendition. Tell me a little bit about, we, to, to backtrack just, just a second, because you mentioned before, before we started, Art Tatum. Yes. Tell, tell, me, tell me why he's, yeah, I think you've referred to him as the man when it comes to... Oh, it's hard to describe anything about music, musicians and why, but... Um, what can I say about Art Tatum? He, he, he in his way, uh, uh, did what Miles did, which, which was he, he was just, first of all, a completely spontaneous, creative improviser, although his style and the, the, the style that you, that you hear coming out is very different than, you know, the great quintet or Bitches Brew or mm -hmm. any of that stuff. You hear this piano music roll, rolling out Liza and, and uh, uh, all, the, all of the American songbook the way he does. But if you hear him play a song twice, you'll hear two completely different songs mm. because he played, the, uh, he played uh, each song in a new unit of time every time he played. And of course, his, his command of the instrument was just prodigious. It was, it was ridiculously over the top. That's why I said before, he's, he, he, he's probably my favorite pianist of all time yeah. and next to Glenn Gould. Mm. One, of the things, one of the things you did, if, um, if I understand, kind of early on in New York, 
while you were playing with small groups and starting that part of your career, you would play with Thad Jones and Mel Lewis in, in their, their jazz orchestra, big band, you know, in effect. And I'm, I'm wondering how that experience um, either, you know, either changed your thinking about the small group process or, or in some way expanded your, your, your thinking about the music you were making. Well, um, always there's always the importance in, in, uh, in, in, in a band is the individuals or the creative ones. Like in, that, in that band, Thad Jones was the creator. He was the arranger, composer, uh, kind of the spiritual head of the band. Between him and Mel, they, they put the whole thing together. But mm. Thad was the, was the musical and spiritual leader of that band. So I came and I was, uh, I was sitting, uh, subbing in for Ro Roland Hanna. Uh, and uh, Thad treated me in a similar way that Miles did, actually. We, uh, now that I think about it, uh, I'll give you an incident. Like, like my first night on the band down at the Vanguard in New York, uh, we're doing this chart. Now, now I'm, I'm having to read charts. So I'm, I've got my, my eyes focused on reading the changes and I'm trying to see how to, how to, what to do with the piano part. Mm. Then it comes, this next section, it says piano solo. So, okay, all right, so I'm, I kind of knew the tune. I was playing a piano, so I played once through the, the cycle. And then while, while I'm playing and I'm looking at the music, the, the, the bass and drums stop. And I'm all, all on my own. And I'm going, right? And I, so I keep playing, I look up to see what's happening. And, and Thad, Thad is standing there looking at me like this, going, meaning, go ahead, son. <laughs> you got it. He, he stopped the rhythm section to make me play alone. So he, he was incredibly um, uh, encouraging to mm. me. One of the things, uh, you know, I think, I think you, you mentioned about that experience of playing in a big band is, you know, not to be playing when the, when, when the horns are going full blast. Well, you gotta, you gotta watch Duke and, and Count Basie to see how to play with a big band. <laughs> <laughs> and Count Basie especially, he just let the band have it. Yeah. And then, then when there was a space, you'd hear him playing. But uh, to be pounding away while the band is playing makes no sense. Yeah. Um, I, just going back to, to joining Miles' band, you were introduced to um, an instrument that you had not encountered before, the Fender Rhodes. And I, if I understand, Miles encouraged this. For, for well, he, he demanded it. <laughs> Uh, on, on my way to the bandstand, uh, on this one particular gig, I was following behind him. We were we actually having to walk through the audience in this club hmm. up to the stage. And the, there was already a piano there that I had played the night before. Uh, and I was headed toward the piano. And he saw me headed toward the piano and he turned around and he said, he pointed to the other side of the stage where there was this electric instrument. And he said, play that. That's all he said. Two words. <laughs> Play that. And that's when I said, so how do you turn this thing on? <laughs> if I understand, uh, you, there was a learning curve play, yeah. playing the roads. Yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was tough. It was tough because I, I, I didn't like it at first. And, and, you know, it was delivered. I didn't know how to operate it. It was the main thing. Mm. And uh, how to get a sound out of it and how to tune it. I had to tune it myself, you know, there's a certain way you tune a Fender Rhodes with uh, these little springs that you have to slide up and down on a, on a metal tine. And, um, and then, then I had to figure out how to get a sound out of it, because it's an electric instrument and it needed a speaker. And some of them had speakers, like the, the suitcase Rhodes had a speaker built in. Some of them were just didn't have any speaker and needed to go through an amplifier. Mm. And I knew nothing about amplifiers. So, uh, but I learned pretty quick, and I started to like it pretty quick because it got me up to a volume level where I could com compete with Tony. <laughs> <laughs> That's convenient. Yeah. That's convenient. Did it, did it offer um, compositional opportunities? 
Later on, uh, later on it did, uh, after I played with Miles, I started to, when I put, um, after Miles I played for a year and a half with Dave Hall and, uh, and Anthony Braxton and Barry Altschul in a band called The Circle, mm. and we played free music, we played without, um, mostly without songs or scores. Uh, but then after that I found my own band, Return to Forever, and that's when I started to uh, compose for the, uh, with the electric, with the Fender Road sound yeah. in mind. Yeah. Perfect segue, because that's where I was going next, was Return to Forever. And uh, that, that group had a remarkable arc. You know, it kind of started in one place and went, you know, went to many other places with Al Di Miola and, and the whole idea of fusion and, 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 and all of that. I'm wondering... When you first put it together, what was your intention? Well, my intention was real simple, because when I was playing with the band Circle, I was missing, I was missing a, kind of a, a kind of a groove and a, and, a, and, a, and a swing that got people involved in a, in a, in a, in a groove like that. Uh, right around that time, I was, I was writing more music, but right around that time, I uh, was invited to play for a week at a club called the Blue Something in in Philadelphia, mm. and it was Joe Henderson's septet. So um, I loved Joe, so I went to play with Joe, and there on on stage in the band was Stanley Clark, uh, with with an upright bass and three amplifiers behind him, <laughs> and I brought my Fender Rhodes. So Stanley and I hooked up big time on on that gig. And so Stanley was the first uh, musician that, that I wanted to invite into playing with me in this new ensemble. And it kind of built from there. I, until, yeah, I was looking for, the, actually the first drummer was Hor Horace Arnold, uh, who's the, who's, who plays drums with me on my second recording called Is, along with Jack DeJanette. And Horace, Horace, me and Horace and um, Stanley did some trio gigs experimenting with this music. Um, then the next thing that happened was I, I wanted to put uh, vocal in the band. I wanted a vocalist. And Ayerto's wife, uh, I had met Ayerto in Bitches, playing with Bitches Brew, so mm -hmm. Ayerto introduced me to Flora, his wife, and Flora came by a rehearsal that I had in my loft uh, one time to rehearse these new songs. and. She brought Ayerto with him. Hey, how you doing, Ayerto? And she was singing, and Horace was playing the drums. So when we got around to playing some time ago, which was a samba rhythm, uh, I said, Ayerto, would you, could, could you demonstrate, like, he's a Brazilian, I mean, yeah. he, grew, that's, he is Mr. Samba. Mm -hmm. So I said, could you demonstrate um, a rhythm for this piece uh, for Horace, so Horace can, can, uh, can see how the samba is played on a drum kit. Well, as soon as we started playing, him and Stanley and me, it was like, that was it. So over the next series of gigs with Horace, uh, Ayerto would sit in on that one song and then Horace would play the rest of the set. Eventually, Ayerto became the drummer in the band and Flora was the vocalist. And then needing a flute and a saxophone. Well, actually the first flute player in the band was Hubert Laws. That's pretty good. <laughs> so so that, that was a pretty killing group, but I needed a, a saxophonist as well, so, and I couldn't have two guys. So I found Joe Farrell, who was also uh, a mentor for me in, in New York. He's a little older than me. Mm. He used to show me around. He came and really filled the bill because he's a great flute player and he's a great saxophonist. So that became the first uh, quintet. How did, how did finding those musicians, particularly you know, starting, starting a band, how did it affect you in terms of the compositions you were writing? Did it take time to get to know kind of what the strength of that group would be? You know, after, after one rehearsal and one night of playing, it became obviously what, obvious to me what their strengths were. So uh, it became very, very easy to write music for that quintet. It had, it had sounds and textures in it that I was, first of all, Stanley, Stanley's breadth of, of bass sounds and bass playing is magnificent mm. with, with, uh, with the acoustic bass, his ability to bow, uh, his ability to play whatever on the acoustic bass. And then, yeah. and then we began to in introduce the electric bass as well in the first uh, band. 
And then Joe, with flute, I heard the sound with Fender Rhodes and flute playing unisons that, mm. I, that became one of the sounds of the band that I really loved. But then Joe on soprano and sometimes on tenor. And actually when we went in the studio, he could also play oboe and uh, um, bass clarinet and other uh, wind instruments to give the com me as a composer a breadth of, of timbres. Mm. And then Flora, Flora had a beautiful way to, to interpret the music with her with her vocals. So I had like a little orchestra there as yeah. a quintet. One, you know, one of the things um, that that in in reading about Miles, um, the, mm -hmm. the the interplay, the feedback from the audience, it, it, it seemed as though he considered the audience, you know, part of what was going on on stage. You know, whatever energy. The, the musicians were getting from the audience was important to him. Is that your sense of things? Well, I mean, it's even, it's even more than that, which is without an audience, there's no music, really. I mean, not really. I mean, what's the purpose of it? I mean, I guess you could play for yourself forever. It's a pretty mm -hmm. lonely life. But music, is, music and art is to be shared. It's a, it, to me, it's a social activity, music and art. Mm. The audience is either there in a performance, or they're 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 envisioned as to be there as a composer. Uh, it's a it's a it's an interaction. It's a performance. It's uh, uh, I like to use this word, big word. It's called it's archetypical, because because if you think back to the very beginnings of humankind, what did we do with one another? Is entertain one another? I mean, on on the, on the aesthetic side of things, mm -hmm. aside from the clubs and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and inventing fire and all of that, right, but, and, right, right, and invading countries. Yeah, and all that. aside yeah. from all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, what what we what what is what is prime 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 basic is that we communicate to one another, and when you communicate on an aesthetic level, you tell a story or you make music or you. Dance or you sing, you. This is this is native sense to every every human being. So the audience is always part of part of music. One, um, you've had numerous, many, too many to, to mention collaborations with with all manner of, of terrific artists. There were two that that I I, I kind of want to I want to talk to you about, and I mentioned them in the in the open. One is Gary Burton. When did you first meet him? Uh, 70, actually probably a little bit before 70, but we, we, we started playing together in 70 or 71. But I joined Stan Getz's band in 1967 uh, and, and kind of replaced Gary. Gary went off to form his own group and uh, I got the gig. With, with Stan, we, we, and actually I worked in one of Gary's first bands uh, as as a pianist, but it, 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 that that wasn't a, a right fit for either of us. But later later on in '71, when we got together as a duet, uh, it clicked really really big time. What did what did you hear in his playing? Why why did it click big time? You know, let me take this opportunity to to say that that um, that it's always. It's always the musician, not the instrument, always. It mm. wasn't the vibraphone particularly. It, it was Gary and the communication that, 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 we, that occurred when we played. And then there's the sound of, okay, there's a vibes and a piano, but, but what goes on and how it, how it interacts and how we create together, that was the whole thing. And there was this uh, just immediately when we played together, it was easy. It was fun. It was kind of kind of brisk, sometimes sometimes slow, but mostly brisk. We played, and eventually, as we played together more and more, he 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 showed his great admiration uh, for my comp composing. Hmm. So I found the duet not only great to play with him pianistically, but also, as a composer and arranger, it was a challenge to bring things to, to the duet that made us, uh, made us sound good or that Gary liked to play. So, uh, but he's, Gary, Gary is one, one of the brilliant improvisers. I mean, he, he's playing this instrument, if you think about it, uh, 
similar to a piano, which is it's it's a fixed metal bar that you bang on, mm -hmm. bong, like a bell, bong, and to make that to get romance out of that and and lyricism out of that is just is just like a it's a it's a kind of a trick. Mm. It's a miracle and and nuance. Yeah, I mean it isn't just banging on. Exactly. Something. Yes. Um, I'm imagining some of what you just said also applies to Bela Fleck. Without a Be doubt, I had no, I had no um, particularly like liking of the banjo. Uh, because uh, you know, in a vacuum, I, I do, I do now. By the way, <laughs> having, having worked with Bela sure. a, a lot now, he's really educated me on on the instrument and its and its history. But prior to that, I had not a lot of. Uh, uh, experience with the, the banjo was a ping, ping, pong, ping, ping, pong, pong. It was sounded kind of funny to me, you know. Uh, and uh, but again, it was working with the the man himself mm -hmm. and the interaction that we got into. And then and then it became the musical sonic possibilities of putting the piano together with the banjo sound, which we're still uh, working on. Yeah, because I'm not sure. You would you know, someone would necessarily just gravitate to, oh yeah, piano and banjo. Piano and banjo, right? Yeah. It's it, yeah, it's not work. a natural duet. That's yeah. that's for yeah. sure. How were you introduced to him? Um, uh, Bela, uh, my my remembrance. Bela has a has some other things that he remembers, but my remembrance is meeting him at the Grammys. Actually, he was huh. he was uh, uh, nominated for a Grammy the same year I was. This was a long time ago, and he introduced himself. And I met him that way, and then he invited me to play with him, and uh, on a on a recording, which was a blast. And so then I would begin to invite him uh, to sit in with me, until we finally decided, well, let's do a project together. Yeah. Did you um, did you collaborate in, in uh, writing, in, in terms of writing compositions? You know the way we the way we did that for our first recording was, I think it worked very very well, which is. Uh, he wrote some stuff and I wrote some stuff, and I'd I'd, se uh, I'd send him the the music as a PDF, and he'd look at it and I'd try try and make a little demo, and he'd do the same for me, uh, and uh, we we ended up having his compositions and my compositions, but we didn't actually collaborate as composers. I I was never. I mean. As an improviser, that's where the collaboration happens if, if you're going to improvise something with another. Mm. When we improvise together, we kind of co-create or compose as we go along. But as far as writing a song or writing a form down, I've never found it uh, a way to do that with another. It's always been on my own. Mm. That, it, yeah, that's interesting, actually, because you know there's a whole world out there of you know, collaboration and co-writing. and. Um, um, you know, people who, who write to, together, but you find it... But you know, that's a misnomer. In How a, so? In a sense. It's a misnomer because if two people are, are creating something, the way it really works is one person creates something and shows it to the other person. Then the other person takes that and he takes something and he creates something else of it and it goes back and forth like that, I guess. But, but, but Two minds don't have a thought. Hmm. Only a single mind has a thought. Then the thought is transmitted, and then the other mind then goes, has an opinion about it. Or changes it. Uh, in changes some it way. or sends something right. back or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you, uh, a couple, few years ago, a couple years ago, um, for your 75th birthday, you did a series of performances in, in New York with. with with seemingly almost every eight weeks, eight weeks, so almost every <laughs> configuration or band that you or artist that you had worked with. Well, oh, not oh, every, yeah, uh, but, but that, that, a little hyperbole. Many but and many. some some new ones too. Yes, and and certainly reflective of you know the arc of your career. And I'm wondering at the end of all of that. Didn't, I needed a vacation. Yeah, well, I'm sure. I'm, 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 I'm you know, I'm sure. What did, what did you learn about yourself in that process? Uh, I learned that I needed a vacation <laughs> after eight weeks of, of work, hard. working hard. Yeah. But I also, I also learned. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I learned. I learned that that uh, that when I have my, I relearned again that when I have myself surrounded by 
by friends and and such such artistry that of, of these these musicians that came to to play with me. Mm. It's like riding on a cloud. I mean, uh, but my my biggest job during those eight weeks was as a librarian, because I needed to put set sets together of of saying, well, let's play this or and. And uh, the other guys may have needed some music beforehand, and so I had to go through my files and be sending music out. That that was that was ninety five percent of the job as as a librarian. But once I got to the gig to play, it was just mm. with with these great people. Yeah, you know, the, one one of the things that I think marks your career is a, a, a willingness to change, a willingness to to explore and and this desire to push forward and and I think you've talked about that impulse to create um, can you describe that for us what 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 is that impulse in you it's the same as in you and in all of us it's the same impulse it's it's buried in most uh, but when it when it's when it's nurtured and when it's allowed to flower great things can happen I mean that that is what that's what a person does is he creates. Uh, otherwise, you become a, 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 a leaf drifting in the wind. I mean, mm. uh, you know, moved around by everybody else and everything else. So to create is to, is to have something that you'd like to do and to do it. And more, more and more and more. And then, and then there are different wavelengths that you can create on. You can explode a bomb or you can write a song. Uh, and uh, I chose to write songs and to to play to play songs. So so, um, and then then as I uh, uh, through life as I continually noticed that that this thing of creating music and sharing it with audiences and people and other other musicians, it 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 uh, it stimulates the same wavelength in them. Like you know, you play music for someone, they go, they have to go up to that wavelength to receive it, right? So they receive it. So now we're on that wavelength. I've even taken to tuning audiences up to an A440, just, to, just to you, you get on that wavelength, you know. And uh, uh, it's the, it's the joy of living. It's, it's, it's. If there had to be a reason for existence, it would be the reason for existence. It would be creating and sharing it with one another on, 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 an, on an aesthetic level. Like, like uh, what better game could there be? And then as I see that people were, would benefit by it some way, e even if it's just a little bit of pleasure or, or, or sometimes inspiring or sometimes more or, or whatever, uh, I felt that I was contributing something to to my environment, and and so I just keep doing it, keep doing it, you know. You win a Grammy, what am I going to do with that? Aside from take it as a, as an encouragement to just do more, like oh, I'm being acknowledged for that creation, so I better keep going, man. Mm. And and many artists I've talked to take it that way. Yeah, yeah, it's a natural impulse. You know, as as an encouragement to, yeah. okay, now I have to I have to go do more of this. You know, we, we've been talking about we've been talking about jazz, and we've been talking about classical music. You know, a, a, a little bit. Um, do you think? Do you think the the, the idea of genre is limiting? Uh, it, it's 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 a total. Um, I've got to think of a much stronger word than limiting. It's it's a, it's a total barrier to 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 cre creation genre. Uh, are thinking in terms of styles because all genres and all styles are generalities. They're fine for the language. If you have to say I'm going to a jazz concert or a classical concert, it's in, in chatting. Mm. But if you're trying to study a subject, if you're trying to really learn something about a craft or, or an art form, um, you, you, uh, the, the genres can be red herrings. They'll just lead you all over the place. You see, because because when you say, like, if I ask a guy, what kind of music do you like? Yeah, I like jazz. What does that even mean? <laughs> what do you mean you like jazz? Oh you, oh, you mean you like the way Paul Whiteman plays? Hmm. 
Or another guy will go, oh, I like the way, I like George Gershwin's music. Oh, I see. Or another guy will go, I, I like the way Eric Dolphy plays. Oh, I see. Or another guy will go, I like the way Kenny G plays. Oh, I see. Now you get, get an idea of what he's talking about because he's speaking about specific artists. Mm. But he says, I, I like jazz. What does that even mean? I spoke to, uh, had a conversation with a young, a, a young, for the purpose of this conversation, a young pop artist um, who, who said to me, genre was devised as a means to sell music. It doesn't affect me, speaking of herself. Yeah, it's a marketing term. At I all. agree. It's a, but know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with marketing either. It's not like it's bad. Mm. You got to market something to in order to sell it. But it's, you know, it's the way the world works. Yeah. But to create, you don't need, you, mm. genres don't, don't matter much. Um, obviously, we're, we're, we're doing this as part of the Prestige 70 um, celebration. And, and I'm wondering, because you may have crossed paths, did you ever cross paths with Bob Weinstock, the gentleman who founded I Prestige? Think, I don't think I ever met Bob, no. Yeah. Um, you know, he had, you know, obviously, a, you know, a very, very unique approach, um, particularly early on in terms of putting musicians together. Um, there was not a lot of rehearsal um, and, you know, he put people in a room uh, and let them do, you know, what great musicians do. It's what a good producer does is he finds the artists uh, and puts them in the room and lets them do his thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the conversations I read that, 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 that Miles had had with him um, when he brought Miles back to New York from East St. Louis um, was the goal was to just find the best musicians he could and put Miles in the room with them and see what happened. And that's where you get these incredible, you know, half a dozen or whatever albums on prestige with those remarkable names, relax and cook in steam and right. um, it's an incredible body of work. Right. Right. Well, I mean, uh, uh, I don't, I don't have hard specific data on this, but knowing uh, how those bands probably got put together, they weren't put together by a producer. Mm. That's for damn sure. Mm. Uh, Miles put those bands together. Uh, I don't think the producer had anything to do with choosing John Coltrane mm. or Philly Joe Jones or, yeah. you know, <clears throat> the, my, that that was com, com, completely Miles's uh, Miles's thing. But to to give Miles the um, the platform to make that music. By the way, those recordings. Uh, I don't know if you know this uh, about Prestige, but uh, the story that I got was. All of those working, steaming, relaxing albums that were done were done as the completion of a contract. Yes. And they were done in just a few days. Yes. Right. They were done like in two sessions, I believe, two or three. Yeah, yeah, like that. that's right. Yeah. And because, because they were obviously, all of them were, I, I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure they were all first takes, pretty well first takes, because they, even time-wise, to get all of those tracks in, they would have to be throwing them down one after the other. But those were the, those, that was the set list that Miles was playing in clubs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, and, and that is absolutely the case. Yeah. You know, he had already signed to Columbia. Right. And he, need to fin he needed to complete his contract. Right, right. To, um, uh, to prestige. Um, so, last, last question. Um, I mentioned in the open 22 Grammy Awards, um, nominated now for your, your 23rd. Um, and, and we talked briefly about you know, the, the, the Grammy Award being kind of uh, an encouragement or motivation to, to, to do more. But as you, as you look back at, at this kind of recognition, what does it mean to you? Uh, it's just, I don't, I don't know how, how, to, how to say it. It's just... It's just uh, I hope I'm not getting in the way of other people winning Grammys. I, I, uh, <laughs> you know, for, first of all, you know, in all deference to all of the very, very good works that the, that the Grammy organization does mm -hmm. in, in education and in, in uh, getting, getting, uh, getting the laws to change in the favor of, uh, of musicians and composers and artists and so forth, I'm with all of that. I'm definitely 
happy to be a member of the of, of the of Maris for for so long. But it must be said at one point that a competition is not part of uh, the basic nature of an artist, mm. and that's why you see you see this kind of response when you ask me or others like, what does it mean to win Grammys? Because you, you don't you're not out there to win something. Mm. You're 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 out you're, you're out there to to be with the other artists as as a as this tacit uh, and sometimes not so tacit mission that we've got to just uplift spirits and just bring bring the music to the world mm. so so everything that the grammys do to accomplish that goal uh, uh, and maybe a competition is the thing that makes people look into the show. You know, oh, who's going to win? You know, like a football game. Yeah. But but in actual fact, there's in, in my mind, uh, uh, art and music is such such a subjective thing that all it can be is a popularity voting thing. So so I I thank all of those who vote, of course, because they're voting for me. Well, mm -hmm. gee, thanks. But but. Uh, I'm I'm humbled by it, but uh, I just have to go out and write my next piece of music. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I lied. I have, I have one one additional question because you mentioned uplifting spirits and your latest album, Antidote. Um, that's very much the intention here. Oh, without a doubt, we're the antidote. That's the whole idea of antidote. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's how the lyric came about. We dance and we sing and we play, and we don't uh, we don't particularly like war and cruelty. Mm. Uh, <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. That's what the artists uh, are, are all about. So we, it, it, you could, you could say in a in a humorous way that we're kind of an antidote. We come to town and boom, have some of this. Go to another town, look, take some of this. Get them dancing and singing and get get them on that wavelength. And uh, you know, while you know, because because if you read the the newspapers or the media, all you get is bad news. It's not true, by the way, that it's all bad news, but that's what you get inundated with. And there are, you know, it's, it's, it's not a completely peaceful planet. Uh, <laughs> so, so we're the antidote. Yeah, well, um, we very much enjoy the fact that, that you are the antidote and your music. Um, we could not be more grateful that you took the time to join us. Chick Corea, thank you so much. Well, thanks for your interest, man. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Okay. You'll find additional episodes of the Prestige 70 podcast at craftrecordings.com forward slash prestige70 or wherever you download podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Craft Recordings, crafting the future from the past. Edited by Zach Stilwell and produced by Laura Saez. I'm Scott Goldman. Thanks for listening.